We'll be looking at chapter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, if we can get that far. Now, I want to remind you of what we covered in chapter 1, because chapter 1 is a, is a powerful segue into chapter 2 of Hebrews. In chapter 1, let's just look at it for just a moment. Look at the first three verses, because those are three key verses. God, after he spoke long ago, to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Now remember, this book, this letter was written to Jewish believers who had been scattered because of persecution. It wasn't easy for them. In fact, some of them, the persecution was so hot and heavy, they were thinking about going back and contemplating going back to Judaism. And, and turning uh, their back on Jesus and the gospel and the Christian faith. So God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, that would be uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, uh, Daniel, the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his son. That would be the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And then in verses 5 through 14, uh, the writer of Hebrews makes the case for the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ over the angelic beings. So you've got this powerful first three verses where God speaks in these last days in, in the most amazing, astonishing way possible through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he makes the point that Jesus is superior to the angels. And that's going to be very important as we move into chapter 2. Now, in Hebrews uh, chapter 2... We, we, we notice the first major warning in this book. There are five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And each of these warning passages are, are, are very, very serious. And we run into the first one tonight in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. Now, the first thing I want to point out to you as we move into chapter 2, is that we've got to pay close attention and never drift away from the gospel. And I'll get into that more in just a moment. The opening verses of chapter 2 um, are, are powerful. I mean, the, the tension that you feel in these verses, the, the power of these verses just resonate 
as you read them from the pages of the Bible. In Hebrew chapter 2, verse 1, the Bible says, for this reason. Now, stop right there. When you see for this reason, what reason is he talking about? Now, your, your version may have the word therefore. The New American Standard has for this reason, but they both mean the same thing. And here's what they do. They push you back to chapter 1. Okay? Because of what has been revealed in chapter 1, for this reason, and we come to the first command in the book of Hebrews. In chapter, chapter 1, there are no commands. There, there's nothing for us to do in chapter 1. Chapter 1 is a celebration of who Jesus is, and it's a celebration of the fact that he is superior to the angels. Okay? You come to chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, and there is a shift. There's a change. Now there's something for us to do. And it's something very serious that we must do, whether you're living in the first century as these believers were, or whether you're living in the 21st centuries as we are today. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. So that we do not drift away from it. Now, the scriptural fact of Jesus' superiority over the angels and his, and his final word to the human race there in chapter 1 are considerations that we've got to keep in mind even today as we think about what Jesus has said and the gospel that he came to uh, provide for the human race. Notice it says we must pay much closer attention. In, in light of the fact that Jesus is superior to angels, in light of the fact that Jesus' word is the final word from God to the human race, you know that God, look, look the Bible is complete. It's complete. There's, there wouldn't be no additions to the Bible. Okay, And anytime somebody comes to you and say they've got a new revelation on par with the Bible, you need to turn a deaf ear to that. that that's garbage. That's not going to happen. Okay. Now, notice this. So that we do not drift away from it. Now, the word drift is sort of a nautical term. Imagine that, that you're on a river, okay? You're on a, not a lake, but you're on a river. And, and if you don't do anything, I mean, if you don't put a paddle in the water, that boat is going to move because of what? The current. The current's going to take it wherever the current is going, downstream. It's going to take it. And so drifting happens naturally unless we have an anchor attached to something that's strong and can hold the boat. If we are not securely tied to the truth of the supremacy of Jesus, we will drift into danger faster than you can snap your finger. I promise you that. One doesn't have to do anything to drift. 
By, by the way, can I ask you a question? What do you have to do to go to hell? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. What do you have to do to drift? Absolutely nothing. Don't do anything. You'll drift. Departure from the faith usually comes from slow drifting, not sudden departure. By the way, this problem of drifting, it impacts people, it impacts churches, it impacts institutions, drifting. I, I ran across an example today. I, I read this article. If I can find it. Yeah, here it is. It w was written by Tim Snyder. And it's entitled, When the Harvard of Christian Schools Goes Woke. Now, this school is a Christian college. It's a famous Christian college. It is a, a college that Billy Graham graduated from. It's a college that uh, has the writings of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. It's a very famous Christian college. And they've been drifting. Let, let me just read this to you. It is a drift from its orthodox Christian moorings. But this is, isn't a recent drift. Now, notice the word drift here. Okay? The word drift. In the 2000s, the education department commended the teachings of Marxists. In 2016, 78 faculty members voiced support for a fellow professor who stated, and I quote, Christians and Muslims worship the same God. And five years later, the school held its first ceremony recognizing uh, students based upon, uh, upon race. This is Wheaton College. You've heard of Wheaton College, haven't you? Yeah, Wheaton, Illinois. Yeah. And their, their professors teach critical race theory. Uh, they, they teach religious syncretism and segregation. And let me find something else here. Oh, Wheaton instructs students not to use the word service. Don't, you can't use the word service at Wheaton College. Instead, they are to use sacrificial co-laboring. Even though service is found throughout the Bible. Your Bible has a word service throughout it. Um, Oh, they don't, they forbid the word mankind. You can't use the word mankind. 
Seeing this word is prohibited, it's not surprising. The very definition of man and woman is on shaky ground there at Wheaton College. Well, you, you get the picture, okay? This college, this university is a famous Christian university. Some of the greatest minds in the Christian faith have gone there. And yet, they started drifting. It was slow. It was imperceptible at the beginning. By the way, uh, when I went to seminary in 1984, the Southern Baptist Convention was adrift. It was adrift. And thanks to Dr. Rogers and some more brave, courageous preachers in the convention, they were able to pull the Southern Baptist Convention back to belief in the Word of God. I, I went to seminary almost came home the first summer, the second semester summer school after I first got there in May. You know why? Because I had a liberal doctoral fellow that was teaching a class and he was spouting some liberal stuff. My goodness. I went home to Darlene. I said, I hope you didn't throw the boxes away. Thank goodness I had a good friend I'd already met there on campus, and he said, Chuck, you don't need to leave now. You need to stay. You need to receive, because there's a lot of good professors. You need to receive what's good. You need to reject what's not good, and you need to get your MDiv degree so God can use you in ministry and churches. And thank goodness I listened to him. So... I want you to know that this idea of drifting, it, it affects individuals, individual believers. I remember I hadn't been here too long, and uh, there was an individual who's a member of this church, singing the choir and everything, and that dude apostatized. He just totally apostatized. I was shaken to the core. I wouldn't have guessed that in a million years. As far as I know, he's still not in church anywhere. He started believing some liberal stuff. It was almost blasphemous. Anyway, so here, here's the thing. Warren Wiersbe wrote this. What causes drifting? He said, in my pastoral ministry... I've discovered that neglect of the word of God and prayer publicly and privately is a cause of most spiritual drifting. And he is absolutely right. So how do we protect ourselves from this spiritual drift? Remember, please remember this. You don't have to do anything to drift. You can just be passive and not do anything, and I promise you, you're going to drift. You're, you're, listen, you're either growing spiritually or you're going backward, okay, in your, in your faith, in your spiritual life. So how do we protect ourselves? Well, we must study the Word of God. We've got to study the Word of God. You say, well, I get enough from you on Sunday morning, Wednesday night. No, you don't. No, you don't. You need, listen, we need to read the Bible every day. Every day we need to read the Bible. I'm, I'm about to finish 
reading the Bible through again. I, I've read it through numerous times. It never gets old. You know what I've discovered? I can read the same portion of Scripture umpteen times and I'll get something new out of it because the Spirit of God will give me something new when I read it. Fresh, powerful, convicting, encouraging. And I'll tell you, it'll do the same for you. I want to encourage everybody in this room, everybody watching live stream. You discipline yourself spiritually. You get in the Word of God and you stay in the Word of God. And you, you take the Word of God and prayer in your quiet time. And I promise you, if you do that on a regular basis, you will not drift. You will not drift. There are only two options. You either go forward in fidelity or drift backward in faithlessness. Now, look at page three. Look at Hebrews um, 2, verses 2 and 3. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty... How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was at the first spoken through the Lord and it was confirmed to us by those who heard? Now, understand this. Verse 2 is talking about the Mosaic law. Because the Bible says that when Moses went up on, the, on Mount Sinai, that the angels were played a significant role in giving Moses the Mosaic law, the old covenant. In Acts chapter 7, verse 52 and 53, Stephen said this, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Remember, Stephen is, is, is about to be martyred. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They kill those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, the Lord Jesus, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by what? By angels, and yet did not keep it. Galatians 3.19, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. That seed to come would be the Lord Jesus. Now, notice what, what he said. He's talking about the, the Mosaic law, the old covenant. He said, every transgression and disobedience under the old covenant which was mediated and ordained by angels, received a just penalty. The Mosaic law included the law of sowing and reaping. Commit murder. You know what the penalty was? Capital punishment. Commit adultery. You know what the penalty was? Capital punishment. For everything that you did under the old covenant in a way of transgressing, transgressing the old covenant, not obeying God, not obeying 
the, 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 the Mosaic Covenant, which had been given through the, the agency of angels, there was a punishment involved. There was discipline involved when they drifted into a pattern of disobedience. Let, let me give you an example. Do you remember when God sent Moses to Egypt to deliver the children of Israel from e Egyptian bondage? Remember that? And man, I'm telling you, they saw God do miraculous things, didn't they? Manna from heaven. Every day they go out, they get the manna, except on, on the Sabbath day. And they didn't, couldn't get on Sabbath day, but the day before they would get enough for that day and the Sabbath day. And, man, there, there were so many things. God split the Red Sea and allowed the children of Israel to go through on dry ground, right? And then when they got through and Pharaoh's army decided that he was, didn't want to let his slaves go that cheaply, he sent the army down in to, to get them and bring them back. And, and God removed his hand and they were drowned by the wall of water that crashed down upon them. I mean, they saw God do some amazing stuff. And yet, God promised them. He said, I'm bringing you out to bring you into the land of promise, which today is the land of Israel, okay? I'm bringing you out to bring you in. That was a promise from God. And, and lo and behold, there were several times in, in their wilderness wandering as they make their way to the promised land that they disobey God, right? And God disciplined them all along the way. And then finally, when they got to Kadesh Barnea and, and they sent spies into the land to spy out the land to see if it was something they wanted to do. If I don't know why they did it really. Anyway, uh, they came, the spies came back and 10 of the spies said this, and we're like grasshoppers in their, in, their, in their sight. These are giants in the land. There's no way we can take it. But two guys came back, Caleb and Joshua. And they said, look, you guys say they're too big to hit. We say they're too big to miss. We can do it. With God's help, we can take the land. And as you might know, the majority of the Jewish people formed a back to Egypt committee. They had to be Baptists. <laughs> they formed a back to Egypt committee and, and they were going back to Egypt and, 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 God, and God said, you're messing up. And then they changed their mind. Remember they changed their mind? But the window of opportunity had shut. And God took that generation of older Jewish people and they died in the, they wandered around the wilderness for 40 years and they died without ever stepping foot into the promised land. And God said to them, your little boys and girls that you were concerned about being hurt going to the promised land, they're going to go into the promised land and they're going to do what you should have done. Powerful. So every transgression and disobedience under the old covenant received a, notice what it says, a just penalty. 
I read this week about a young lady who stabbed a guy she dated about a hundred times, killed him, and she was let go. It said, the, the judge said it was cannabis psychosis and a murderer walking the streets. Now, that's not just punishment. But I can tell you this, God is fair. He is fair and he is good. And everything God will ever do in our lives is just. I promise you that. So it's a just penalty. So notice what he says next. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Well, to whom is this warning uh, directed? Well, we know that this cannot be Christians, right? Look at this. John MacArthur said they can never be in, a Christian can never be in danger of neglecting salvation in the sense of not receiving it, okay? Be, because they already have it. Now look, once you're saved, you're always saved. It's the eternal security of the believer. The Bible says when you repent of your sin and you place your faith in Jesus, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. The Bible says in John 10 that when you believe in Jesus, uh, the, the Lord puts you in his hand and, and then you're put in the Father's hand, the, the, the powerful double gripped uh, of Jesus and the Father, and no one can snatch you out of their hand. So you're eternally secure in Christ if you truly repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus, Okay. So obviously, not talking about true Christians here. Now, a, a Christian can neglect reading their Bible. They can neglect discipleship. They can neglect prayer. They can even neglect worship for a while. But here's what I've discovered about Christians. When you're a Christian and you fail to do what God wants you to do, he disciplines you. In fact, we'll get to it in Hebrews chapter I think it's chapter 5, he talks about the discipline of the Father. How the Father disciplines us because he loves us and he wants us to be holy. He wants us to be holy. And that's a powerful principle. So, um, this warning cannot be to true Christians, okay? in the sense of not receiving salvation. Nor can the warning be to those who have never heard the gospel. Because if you've never heard the gospel, how can you neglect it? Right? You can't neglect something you don't even know about. The warning must therefore, John MacArthur said, be directed to non-Christians, specifically Jewish non-Christians, who are intellectually convinced of the gospel, but who failed to receive it for themselves. In other words, they're trying to figure out, is this for me or not? Now, remember the context. These believers were being persecuted. And these folks who were trying to figure out if, if, if the gospel was for them or not, 
they saw genuine believers being persecuted, their, their homes being confiscated. They saw them put in prison. They saw them beaten and tortured. And these folks who are trying to figure out if this is for me or not are, are trying to decide, if I'm, am I going back to Judaism or I'm, am I going to follow through? Am I going to receive Jesus as my Savior and Lord? The author here seems to be saying, all of us who have heard the gospel ought to believe it and follow Christ. That's the key. The Greek word translated neglect, interesting word. It's used in Matthew 22, 5. Take your Bible, turn to Matthew 22 just a moment. Matthew chapter 22, it's a parable. Look at verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom, this is a parable of the marriage feast, okay? The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling to come. They were unwilling to come. And it goes on to say, verse 4, again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. Now that, that little phrase there, paid no attention, is the same Greek term used over here in Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, translated as neglect, okay? They paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged. And he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. So uh, I want you to understand, the, the author here, it speaks of opportunity, opportunity, okay? You got an opportunity to be saved and you pay no attention to it. You reject it, okay? You ignore it. You disregard the opportunity. The author has moved from the lesser, the angels and the old covenant to the greater Jesus and the new covenant. And if the old covenant had had come from God and was delivered by mere angels and he demanded retribution for sin, how much more, think about it, how much more will God judge those who have spurned the gospel and now, now delivered to us by his own son? Take your Bible, flip over to Hebrews. Let's just see an example of that. Hebrews, I think it's chapter 10. Look at verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, the old covenant, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much, look at verse 29. Boy, this thing will send chill bumps up and down your spine. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Wow. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is communicating over here in chapter 2. Listen, if, if you dishonor uh, the, the old covenant mediated through angels, and there's a just punishment as a result, then how much more is the punishment going to be when you reject the Son of God and count the blood of His covenant as unclean and insult the Spirit of grace who comes to you, convicts you of your sin, moves you to contrition, and you turn a deaf ear to what God wants to give you through the gospel? Whoa. This little idea that, that some people seem to um, engender in their mind, that, well, it, it's take it or leave it. You, you know, it's take it or leave it. That, that's good for some people. It's not for me. I, I'm telling you, folks, I'm telling you on the authority of God's word that there is a heaven and there is a hell. I'm telling you, that rejecting the gospel and rejecting the opportunity to be saved after Jesus paid such a, a heavy price for us to be saved it is blasphemy against God. It is. People say, ask me all the time, what is the unpardonable sin? Well, the unpardonable sin, as far as I can understand, is rejecting the gospel and rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the unpardonable sin. God will forgive you if you've committed adultery. God will forgive you if you committed murder. He, he forgave David, didn't he? David committed murder. David committed adultery, right? God will forgive you if you cheat on your income taxes. God will forgive you. If, if whatever you do, God will forget. But I can tell you one thing God won't ever forget. He will never forgive a person who has rejected the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and said no to Christ. It's exactly what chapter 2 is talking about. Now, look at this. Notice, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord... It was confirmed to us by those who heard. So the author here supplies four reasons why we should pay close attention to what Jesus says and not drift past the gospel. And here are the reasons. Number one, and we've already talked about this somewhat. If the word which came by angels, I'm on page four. If the word which came by angels demanded serious consideration and obedience, then we must take the word that came from the Son of God even more seriously. 
I love this statement here. A greater word brought by a greater person having greater promises will bring a greater condemnation if it is neglected. Now here's a second reason why we should do exactly what it says here in this warning passage. We should pay close attention to what the Lord Jesus says and not drift away from it. And, and, and we should believe Jesus. We should believe the gospel. We should put our faith in Christ. Here's a here's second reason. The word of the Lord was confirmed by his disciples. It's right here in the text. In Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and three through 3, uh, Luke wrote this. The first account I composed, Theophilus. How would you like to name your child Theophilus? Somebody need to do that sometime. I heard Junior Hill, he went to heaven the other day. Have you, have you ever heard Junior Hill preach? We had him here at this church several years ago. We had 30, 31 people baptized in that one day revival. I never will forget that. He preached the simplest little sermons. But I'm telling you, he was an anointed evangelist that God had called into ministry. And I heard Brother Junior said, uh, that he thought about naming his son Theophilus because he was the awfulest looking thing he'd ever seen <laughs> when he came, came out of the womb. He was kidding, of course. Okay. So Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do, that's Luke's gospel, okay? Until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Now, now, now look again at verse 4. Reason number one, why we should pay close attention to what Jesus says and not drift past the glorious gospel, not neglect the great salvation that he's provided for us. Number one, it's because Jesus spoke the word, right? That's the first one. Number two, it was confirmed by those who heard. That would be John the apostle, that would be Peter, that would be the rest of the apostles. And we have their confirmation right here. Right here in this book, we're studying the confirmation of these apostles who were with Jesus. And, and then here's the, the third reason. God also confirmed the word, of God, the word of his son by signs and wonders and by various miracles. Hebrews, listen. Chapter 2, verse 4, again, God also testifying with them, the, the disciples, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles 
by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. So the author of Hebrews reminds us that miracles do not exist for miracle's sake. Jesus was not putting on a show. Listen, when, when Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus, Lazarus had been dead four days. And remember Martha said, he, Lord, Jesus said, Op, open the, the tomb. She said, Lord, he stinketh. That's King James. He stinketh. And Jesus said, open the tomb. And they opened the tomb. And when Jesus said, Lazarus come forth, and Lazarus came walking out, and he said, loose him and let him go. That was not a show. There was a purpose behind that. Every miracle that Jesus performed had a purpose. Okay? Now, look at this. John's gospel, which we're looking at on Sunday morning, records seven powerful miracles that confirm that Jesus is the Son of God. Turning water into wine, John 2, 1 through 12. Healing the nobleman's son, John 4, 46 to 54. Healing the man at the pool, the pool of Siloam, which archaeologists have just discovered. It's amazing to me. I, I read these things about these archaeologists, what they find in Israel, and they say, hey, they're shocked. This confirms the Bible. I'm not shocked. Are you shocked? I'm not shocked. So there are seven miracles, turning the water to wine, healing the nobleman's son, healing the man at the pool, feeding the 5,000. That's not a show. Walking on water, healing a man born blind, and resurrecting lives. Seven miracles in the gospel of John to confirm to the Jewish people and to the apostles that Jesus is more than an ordinary man. He's the son of God. He's the savior of the world. He's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. Nothing is impossible with him. And then finally, the fourth confirmation that we see here is God confirmed the word, the Lord, the word of the Lord Jesus by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. So what did Jesus do when he ascended? The Bible says when he ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, right? And the Holy Spirit indwelled every single born-again believer, and the Holy Spirit has indwelled every single born-again believer in this room and every single born-again believer who lives in Carville and the entire world. Sealed by the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. And when the Holy Spirit came into us and made our body his temple, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians. It also says in 1 Corinthians that he gave spiritual gifts to us. Do you know what your spiritual gift is? You ought to think about that. Because if you serve outside of your spiritual giftedness, you're going to be frustrated. But if you serve in your sweet spot, man, it's going to be sweet, I promise you. So the Lord gave spiritual gifts where men like uh, Peter 
could go to Cornelius' house and, and, and bring an evangelistic message and Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and all the people gathered at his house were saved. They were saved. That's the confirmation of the gift of the Holy Spirit according to his will. And that shows that the resurrected Lord is superior to angels. The new covenant is superior to the old covenant. To sum up, the most important message we can hear is the message that comes from the Father through the Son in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, that God has revealed himself and made a way for us to be saved through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the most earth-shattering news we will ever hear. God has spoken to us in Jesus Christ. What could possibly be better than that? Now, I think we're going to have to call it quits right there because I can't get started in this next part and finish. So I'd rather take the whole thing the next time, okay? So um, the thing I want you to remember as you leave here tonight is remember these first three verses, the warning passage. For this reason... We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. Because we've heard from Jesus. We haven't just heard from angels. We've heard from Jesus. So that we do not drift away from it. Now, I am in no way am I discounting the old covenant, the, the Mosaic law. I'm not at all. It's a very important part of, of our heritage as believers. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. And I love verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How shall we escape? Let me have a word of prayer. Hey, listen. Next week... I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen, but, but Cade, my grandson, is, is, has a, a signing at his school, signing to play football at Gulf Coast Community College next, uh, next Wednesday. So I don't know if I'll be back or not, but I will let you know. We'll, we'll text you and let you know. If I can be back, I'll be back. If I can't, I'll let you know, and, and we'll pick it up the next time, okay? All right? Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for this great salvation. I thank you for the challenge of verses 1 through 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I'm so glad, Lord, that the people in this room, I'm assuming that everybody in here has received Jesus as Lord and Savior. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would never, ever, 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 ever neglect what it means to grow spiritually. That we'd never neglect reading the Bible. That we'd never neglect prayer. We'd never neglect coming to church and worshiping with other believers so that we will not drift away. 
from what you have provided for us. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. I pray that until you come, Lord Jesus, that we would never, ever, ever drift, but that we, we will constantly be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil is not in vain in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you and God bless you.